gently let go, and with compassion or kindness for yourself, come back. You start over. That's how progress is actually made. We let go and we begin again. We let go and we start over again. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the podcast. So I have a little sore throat, which you might be able to hear. I just came back from five days at a meditation retreat in Vail, Colorado. I cannot wait to share more about that. It was truly, truly life-changing. And today we have a conversation on the podcast with Sharon Salzberg, which is all about mindfulness and meditation. And so I'm really grateful because these are the conversations that we truly need. Our mind is moving so fast and there's so much stress and there's so much more well-being, so much more delicious life available when we can be in the present moment. So I'm really looking forward to sharing today's conversation with you. Before we dive in, I also want to let you know that we're running a Labor Day sale and you can get into my membership now with a discount code. You can use the code LOVE. If you want to join us, our kickoff call is this Wednesday, September 6th. You can go to kathyhowercom slash quilt and use the code love. I cannot wait. This really is something that I have wanted to create, true sisterhood, a place where we can really share what's real, what's really happening in our lives, what we're struggling with, what we're celebrating, a place where we can get that coaching to get that edge on what's next, but also to just really collaborate and support one another. So use the code love, go to kathyheller.com slash quilt, use the code love to get your discount. And if you are an alumni, you might want to DM because there's a separate code for you guys and you can DM me on Instagram to grab the code for alumni. Also, I want to tell you something super cool, which is that I'm partnering with Amy Porterfield. She is doing a boot camp, and it's called Course Confident. You guys, this is the thing that changed my life six and a half years ago. Before I even started the podcast, I took Amy Porterfield's class, and at the time I was a songwriter, and I decided to start this class teaching other songwriters how they could work in the music business and license their music to film and TV. And lo and behold, it was one of my students in that class that suggested to me that I start a podcast, and then I started the podcast. But while I was pregnant with Maddie... I took Amy Porterfield's class, which opened my eyes to so much in the online space and how to become an entrepreneur and what some of those basics were. And it was truly life-changing. You guys, when I started that class, I had a deadline because the baby was due in September and I was taking the class in July. I did the messy version of that class. As you know, that's me. I was just doing my best to get it done. And I launched my own first digital course at the end of July And I made $147,000. Then Maddie was born. I launched the class again. We made $441,000. And by the end of 12 months, that class had made a million dollars. Meanwhile, I started the podcast a few months in because, like I said, the class I started led me to that idea. It's just unbelievable. She's a phenomenal teacher. She will really teach you so much about how to get your footing in the digital space of online marketing and She's a good person and she's really methodical and the way she teaches, you can just really digest all of these things that are really basics. Like if you want to start an online business, it's so important to understand what does it mean to grow an audience? What does it mean to grow your list? How do you launch an online course? Why is an online course so important and so relevant to having an online business? So if you want to sign up for Amy's um, boot camp, I'm actually partnering with her. You can go to kathyhow.com slash Amy. And when you do, you're going to get bonuses from me as well, which is so fun. So sign up for that, kathyhow.com slash Amy. And I will be keeping you posted because we have some fun stuff to give you when you do that. Well, you're going to love today's conversation because the incredible Sharon Salzberg is here. She's a meditation pioneer, a world-renowned teacher, New York Times bestselling author, co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society, and one of the first leaders to bring mindfulness and loving kindness meditation to mainstream American culture. 
which has inspired generations of meditation teachers and wellness leaders. Sharon has been teaching meditation since 1974, and that led to writing numerous best-selling books like Loving Kindness, Real Love, Real Happiness. And earlier this year, she released a new book called Real Life, The Journey from Isolation to Openness and Freedom. In that book, she merges the insights of inspiring voices with her own understanding of mindfulness to show us how we can recover from the emotional effects of crisis. It's going to help you develop the skills to steer yourself back towards an authentic, flourishing life, find the wholeness that lies within, and live with a more spacious, open sense of possibility, creativity, connection, and joy. It's a brilliant book, so go get yourself a copy. Also, you can check out her podcast, Meta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where she explores Buddhist philosophy and interviews top voices in the meditation and mindfulness movement like John Kabat-Zinn, Anne Lamott, Pete Holmes, Young Pueblo, and so many more. I've known about Sharon's work for so long, and it was really an honor to have her on the show. She's like one of the OG leaders in this space, so it's been fascinating to hear what she has to say, and she's so down to earth, and she's also very funny, so she brings this lightness to her. She has a lot of wisdom. Let's get to it. Without further ado, please welcome the remarkable Sharon Salzberg. Sharon, I have known about you for so long. I am so excited to get to like just drink from the fountain, which is your sweetness and your wisdom. So thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. People say that all the time, but I feel like when they say thank you for having me and they're actually as present as you are, I'm like, I really do get to have you because you're (laughs) here. (laughs) You're really here. So I so appreciate the resonance that you put into the world and all the cool ways that you bring all these extra special people together to guide us back home to ourselves. It's just awesome. Before we get into sort of your most current work, I want people to know, and I want to know how you gravitated to this work, how you found your way to all of this Eastern tradition. Like where does little Sharon meet the river called (laughs) all of this? (laughs) Well, the, the kind of two aspects to that. One is how I got into meditation and the other is how I became a teacher. Okay. I'm up for hearing pieces of both. Yeah. Okay. So I got into uh, meditation practice because as a college student at the State University of New York at Buffalo, I took an Asian philosophy course and that was my sophomore year. It was a philosophy requirement. I felt drawn to it. You know, some of it honestly was really circumstance. I looked at the schedule. I thought that's on Tuesday. That's convenient. Let me do that one. Funny. Wow. You know, so of course it completely changed my life. And there were two aspects, I think, to that. One was I, like many people, had a very traumatic, chaotic childhood. And like for many people, my family system is one where this is never spoken about. You just never talk about it. And so I didn't know what to do with all of those feelings within me. And here I was in this class and they're talking about the Buddha and saying, the Buddha said, suffering is a part of life, mm. that this is a natural thing. And whereas that could be a pretty depressing message for some people, for me, it was very liberating. I felt for the first time, like, oh, I belong. I'm not so weird. I'm not so different. This is a part of life. And and then I heard in the class that there were these practices, these methods, these techniques, that if you took them, they're called meditation. If you took them to heart and actually practiced them, you could be a lot happier. So looked around Buffalo, New York. This is 1970. Didn't see it anywhere. And I created an independent study project. I said, I want to go to India and study meditation. So education was kind of wild and woolly in those days. And they said, sure. So I went off with my student loans and my college scholarship. And I was not interested in the philosophy. I was not interested in a new identity or rejecting anything else. I wanted to know like the straight stuff, like how do you do it? How do you do it? with some support and guidance. And I finally found that actually in India and stayed a little longer than my year, but went back to college, finally finished up by getting two years of independent study credit. And then went back to India to finish, or not finish, but to continue studying. So that's the whole first part. So in 1974, I decided I needed to come back. I needed a new visa and there were things in my family I needed to to see and look at. And so I needed to come back, but I thought it was going to be very brief. Okay, I'm going to go home. I'm going to go back to India, spend the rest of my life there. Because indeed, I was a lot happier and just felt like I was always learning. And it was just like adversity, you know, illness and all kinds of things were happening. But it was okay. I could be okay because 
it was so important, like what I was doing and there's so much meaning. So I went to see one of my teachers who was a woman. Uh, her name or nickname was Deepama or Deepa's mother. She lived in Calcutta and she had had a life of enormous suffering and got into meditation as a, an effort to heal some of that. I say that just as a side note because it figures on what came next. So I went to see her to say goodbye and get her blessing for my very brief trip back to the United States. And she said to me, when you go back, you'll be teaching. And I said, no, I won't. And she said, yes, you will. I said, no, I won't. And she said, yes, you will. I thought it was ridiculous. And she said, yes, you will. And then she said two things that were really important. One was, she said, you really understand suffering. That's why you should teach. And especially coming from her. It was a, a whole other way of looking at the pain of my childhood and everything I'd been through and so on. And then she said, you can do anything you want to do. It's just thinking you can't do it that's going to stop you. And I went off. She lived up in, in this room in what we'd call a tenement probably. Uh, walked down these four flights of stairs the whole time thinking, no, I won't. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but I came back to the States and as circumstances evolved, sure enough. She was right, and I was wrong. So I've gone back to study or to practice, but not to live. I just love this whole story. It's amazing. Oh, my gosh. It's so amazing. I just want to add that I took a Southeastern Asian religion class in college, and it blew my mind. And I had just come from my parents' like abusive, violent marriage that turned into a divorce, and my mom's depressed, and I'm reading this, and I'm like, what is this? And I'm Jewish, but like growing up Jewish, I knew nothing other than Mel Brooks mm -hmm. and Woody Allen. That was like all I had. So no like spiritual connection. But then I went on a birthright Israel trip and was like, kind of like, okay. And then I met this rabbi who was a Jewish Buddhist who taught me for the first time about meditation. Mm -hmm. And I was like, huh, what? And so I went back to Jerusalem and thought I would be there for a year, but I was there for three years studying Arya Kaplan and Jewish meditation, which completely changed my life. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I relate so much to that. And what a gift to have that on our paths, that those things, those circumstances presenting themselves. Because if you would have asked me if that would have ever happened to me, I definitely wouldn't have believed it. But you've gone on to not just teach, but to create so many awakened lives because of your potent goodness and what you've come to know and understand and embody. And it's so awesome. And I just want to say thank you for the ripple effects of your presence, of your courage, of your resonance. It's so awesome. So you started teaching where? Like in a bookstore or like in your living room? <laughs> like where did you start teaching? Uh, it could have been because this was 1974, and honestly, if I was introduced to some social situation as a meditation teacher, people were likely to have, like, sidled away, like, ooh, that's kind of weird, isn't it, you know? Or every once in a while, somebody would say to me, did you meet the Beatles over there? Right, right, say, well, right. No, you know, like, different lineage anyway, but yeah, I went when I was in high school, you know, like, I started teaching at Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado. It was the very first summer of its opening. Now it's Naropa University, but oh my God, it was wow. just beginning. And my friend Joseph, whom I'd met, Joseph Goldstein, I'd met him in India at my first retreat. He'd been back about six months already. And Ramdas, who was also at my first retreat as a student, was teaching a class at Naropa Institute in that first summer of about a thousand students. And he had these little subgroups, like the chanting subgroup and the meditation subgroup. So he happened to run into Joseph in Berkeley and uh, invited him to teach the meditation subgroup. So Joseph was there teaching. Jack Cornfield was living down the hall, also teaching. And Joseph's uh, little group was so popular that he was invited to stay on for the second session of the summer. So somewhere still in the first session, I was in the East Coast. I'd sort of done what I needed to do. And a, a small group of us thought, well, Joseph's in Boulder, and, you know, I've never been to Boulder or whatever, and he's got a job in an apartment. Let's go stay with Joseph. So 
we all went. At one point, honestly, there were nine of us moved into his one-bedroom apartment that Nirop had rented for him. And he tells this story from his point of view and how awful it was for him. He's very meticulous. He's very orderly. And, that is hilarious. And so then if you want to said, see if you're enlightened? Try nine people in your one that's bedroom. That's right. How are you doing now? <laughs> well, he did good because he said ultimately – he found relief by stopping to think of it as his apartment, no longer thinking of it as his apartment. We were just living together. So beautiful. I was like chuckling at myself because as you're listing all these people, I'm like, this is like the who's whom of like everybody who's like influential in this whole space. It's like listening to Lauren Michaels talk about when he would in the heyday hang out with his friends who were just up and coming like Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd. And like, you guys were all, just kids really, but you became this generation's compass. You know, it's so awesome Mm -hmm. what you've done for our world. So that's, that's incredible. And cut to, it's just been an endless, it seems endless how many people you've touched. I want to talk about your latest book, Real Life, The Journey from Isolation to Openness and Freedom. I want to talk about the things that you drill down on more in the book. And one of the things is, I love this, how pain and challenges can steer us towards an authentic, flourishing life. I love the word authentic because I feel like just in my own journey, I've come to witness that there's this persona that I play and then there's who I really am. And Mm -hmm. it's so exhausting to play a part. And, And it's also sometimes feels really scary to choose authenticity. Uh, for lots of reasons, to mm-hmm. have to be with what is here or to deal with the fallout of what it would mean to be present with somebody else as you are and how they might respond. There's so much to it that it seems so simple to just be authentic. And then there's all these reasons that we keep choosing out of that. So what about authenticity is available to us and how is it that our pain and challenges can actually help us to be steered towards that authentic life? Well, first of all, I wrote, thank you for everything you're saying. But second of all, I wrote real life in the peculiar circumstance of being in pretty strict isolation because of the pandemic. Right. And, you know, I have asthma. I have a number of issues, you know, so that uh, I just didn't know and nobody really knew. And so. So scary. It was so scary. And I had spent February of 2020 in California traveling all across the state teaching. I got back to New York City, where I lived part-time in early March, and anxiety was building, and it was just really terrible, and people I know, their parents were actually dying, you know, uh, in nursing homes, and I had the thought at one point, you know, I have a retreat center here that I co-founded, the Insight Meditation Society. I have a house right near the, this center. I thought, why don't I go up there for two weeks and ride it out, and then it'll be over. So I came up here March 14th, 2020. Center was still open. I had to close like three days later by law. And uh, and then we just faced like the unknown. You know, we began the center in 1976. And I thought, I want to get to 50 years. Like, I don't want this to kill it. So we went online, which we didn't know how to do. You know, it it was such a period of like being alone and trying to sort of find a footing. And how long did you happening. stay? Those two weeks turned into what? Two years? Uh, well, basically, I'm still here. <laughs> no, it turned into uh, the first time I went back to New York was eight months later. Okay. And I've gone back, but every time I go back, it's like a surge. So I'm like sort of like typhoid Mary. So <laughs> I'm a little bit out of compassion for others. I think. Yeah. I'm not staying long, <laughs> but I, I do go back. But there were a number of extraordinary circumstances. One, I was not traveling at all. Usually I'm writing a book, I'm like snatching an hour when I can write. I wasn't traveling. I haven't been on an airplane since March of 2020. Wow. I wasn't having dinner with people. I was like, I saw people, you know, certainly teaching. I was taught online like a lot. But that too was really powerful for me because I felt people were so open. Like I would read those chats. I'm an inveterate chat reader. And I have in the chat for our conversation, just in case you want to chat with me. You know, people would say things like, I'm a resident in a nursing home. I haven't had a visitor in a year. And I would just take it in. And 
So everything I was doing and saying and trying to express. I just want to cry. I just want to name oh. it. Like that makes me want to cry because like loneliness is like, it's the biggest thing that's a epidemic for us as a culture. I know. And it was so powerful for me to feel the honesty of people and the vulnerability of people and the gift they were giving me and, and trying to meet it, you know, and trying to meet it. And, and at the same time asking myself the the prevailing question for myself was what's still true. Hmm. My expectations are gone. Relationships are shifting. Responsibilities are shifting. You know, what's still true? What am I counting on? What's holding me up? And it came back to, for me, of course, my meditation practice, not in a glib way, but like, really, like, whoa, you know, this is holding me up. And there was one line from the Buddha, which was recurrent, although somewhat difficult, which was echoed some years later by Martin Luther King Jr. What the Buddha said was, hatred will never cease by hatred. Hatred will only cease by love. This is an eternal law. So hatred will never cease by hatred. Hatred will only cease by love. This is an eternal law. So that implies kind of responsibility, right? Like if you're in a conversation and you want love to be a part of it, maybe you have to be the one to introduce it. Or maybe if you're in a fight, and you want a certain result, and you're not going to give up on that, but you don't want to be coming from a place of such hatred. Maybe you have to be the one to think that through. And so it just kept coming to me. Like The reason it's difficult is because, of course, there are any number of situations where one would think, not here, right? I don't have to do that here. I don't have to think about that here. It's too hard. But what about? It's an eternal law. So I had the time because I wasn't traveling, and moving around and I could think these things through and what's important to me. And, and so that was an incredible context for considering this book. Yeah. And one of the things I love about you specifically is your sense of humor. And I think that it's not a small thing because especially in the area of meditation, people feel very intimidated and then they take it really seriously And there is a serious aspect to what it is to not be distracted, right? There's something of weight to it. But for people who don't have a practice and want to, but feel really frustrated with themselves, that there's something wrong with them, that they can't get it, what what do you want them to know about meditation that they might find it more accessible? I think that a little knowledge is good because... We can all have these kind of crazy ideas about what to expect and what we expect of ourselves and that we failed. And probably the single most common comment I get in the early days, if I was introduced as a meditation teacher, would be, that's kind of weird, you know. But these days, or when I was, you know, on the road, like, let's say four years ago, five years ago, people would commonly say, oh, I tried that once, I failed at it. And I'd say, what makes you think you failed at it? Because we don't believe you can fail at it. And that's just some kind of expectation. Good meditation means no thoughts. It means I've eradicated all anxiety. It means there's a certain experience I'm going to have and be able to sustain. It really doesn't mean any of that. You know, so rather than thinking about eradicating thoughts, we think about changing our relationship to thoughts. And that we can do. It takes time often and it's a process. But that's doable. You know, you have a certain thought and for whatever reason, maybe you didn't sleep well last night, you know, you take it to heart and you build a whole self-image around it. You think, this is how I'm going to feel forever. And you feel so lonely, like I'm the only one who ever feels it. Another mood, you're feeling better, you slept, you feel loved. You feel loving, you have that same thought. And it's like, huh, that's an old pattern. I don't don't need that. You can let it go, not because you hate yourself or... You're super demanding, but it's like, well, I don't need that. I want you to, if you can, talk a little bit about the concept of equanimity, because even in what you just said, where you said these words, expectation, right? It's interesting. Sometimes people think they've done something and they call it a meditation. And really what they've done is some kind of visualization about what they want in the future or something like that, which is lovely. And if that serves you, that's fantastic. 
But I think we miss as a culture because we're so outcome and achievement driven. I think we just keep missing this thing called being with what is. And there's so much deep satisfaction in being. Mm-hmm. And when we have these expectations, even if you have the best visualization of the future, even if you like all of that, even if it feels so good, there's still a level at which there's a craving and a yearning for something other than where you are. So when I first learned about equanimity, it was like a life changer. I was just like, what on earth is this? And how have I never had a relationship with this word and what it means? So what does it mean to you when you feel that meditation is is helpful to you, when you feel that that practice, like you said, is keeping you up or whatever you said about it, what does that mean? Why is it good? Why mm-hmm. is it helpful? Why do you enjoy the fact that you have a practice? Well, the common word, of course, is mindfulness. And the important word is equanimity. Is a kind of a little bit of a secret, but uh, back to mindfulness for a moment. If you think about a pattern of thought that comes and whether we take it to heart or we let it go. The important thing is not that the thought came, it's the relationship to it, right? And it's the holding environment within which it's seen. If you are ashamed of most of the things you feel, for example, and this particular emotion arises, the holding environment is likely to be one of shame. You don't want to admit it's there. You don't want to hide it. You hate it. You hate yourself. You You kind of pile on. Whereas if the holding environment for that very thought to come through is just sort of open and clear and calm, thought comes and it goes, and it's like, huh, that's an interesting thought. Rather than I'm the worst person in the world because I have that thought, which we tend to do. So we're talking about the holding environment, not the appearance or non-appearance of a particular thought or emotion. And that's very important because that is doable. And it's very different than the kind of harsh judgment we may heap on ourselves because I can't believe I'm still anxious. I've been in therapy forever. I spent all that money and it was, you know, like meditating for 50 years, for God's sake. Why is that still coming up? And I'm somewhat famous amongst that. You pointed out before. Extraordinary people I started my meditation life with who were at my first retreat for marching up to my teacher, Goenka, SN Goenka, who was my first teacher and looking him in the eye and saying, I never used to be an angry person before I started meditating, thereby laying the blame exactly where I felt it belonged. It was clearly his fault that I was angry, you know. But, of course, I've been hugely angry, but I hadn't really tuned into it. So now I'm doing the first introspection of my life, and all these things are arising. But how am I relating to them is the question. So mindfulness is all about that relationship, and the secret ingredient in that is equanimity. You hear a sound, and it's not just that you hear a sound or you have anger come up or joy. It's not just that you recognize that emotion. But if it's anger, you're not freaking out about it. You're not trying to hide it. You're not ashamed. You're not hating yourself for it. It's a different kind of relationship. Equanimity means balance. That's all it means. It's a weird word. We tend to think of it as indifference or coldness. or I think of it like, you know, that sort of, idea of a stereotype idea of a teenager, like whatever, but it just means balance. And and it means really the balance that will bring us wisdom in the context of mindfulness. Cause you know, it makes sense. If like an emotion arises and we're fighting it right away, we're not going to have much understanding that comes from it. Whereas if we can be there, if we can pay attention, go to the heart of it, first of all, we see interesting things. You know, I've talked a lot about sitting and looking at fear, my own fear. And that means not trying to figure out why is it here and what am I going to do about it? Maybe I need a therapist, you know, but what is fear? What do I feel in my body? And not wonder why am I afraid, but what is it? Like, what's the mood? And one of the things I've seen is that despite the truth also of the world's pronouncement that we're afraid of the unknown, I get really afraid when I think I do know and it's going to be really bad. It's all the stories I tell myself, like, First, that's going to happen. I'm going to go back to New York. I'm going to go back to my apartment. There's so much time away. I'm going to turn on the water in the faucet. Didn't I read something about Legionnaire's disease? Don't people get Legionnaire's disease? And so even in the midst of that kind of arc of anxiety, if I remind myself, you know what? You don't know. I feel relief. 
I feel space, you know, so being able to have some equanimity is the doorway to wisdom. And in other contexts, a life of compassion, trying to make a difference, being a loving person. Equanimity, it kind of turns around a little bit. Equanimity is the voice of wisdom that reminds us there are limits or maybe we need a balance between compassion for someone else and compassion for ourselves. Or maybe, you know, we need to look at those expectations. Like, I will try to do everything I can to make your situation better and help you be happier. But you know what? It's not my universe to control. Would that it were. I once said that in front of a group of people. I said, if only I could control this universe, it would be so much better a world. And someone in the group didn't like that. And I said, are you sure? And I thought, and I said, I am so sure. It would be so much better, but guess what? It's not that way. Nothing's going to make it that way. And so I do everything I can, and I'm not in control of the unfolding events. It's not coldness. you know. It's not uncaring, but it's real. It's wisdom. And so we want wisdom in our compassion. Otherwise, we burn out and we fight. You know, I think if I certainly, and I think any of us, probably if we look at times we've withdrawn from a, scenario like that with a friend or family member or community issue, we haven't withdrawn from an excess of balance. You know, that's not what has us let go. It's something else altogether. That's so enjoyable to listen to you talk. It's, <laughs> it's like reading the best parts of a good book. Everything that you say, it's really an awesome experience. I'm curious what you think for people who disassociate, you know, which is so much of the experience that I know in my own self, which I never even thought I did. But when you sit down to meditate and then you realize how quick you are to be driven to distract mm-hmm. or whatever, mm-hmm. a lot of people, myself included, you know, when you, when you've experienced trauma, it's very like smart that your nervous system found a way to kind of eject mm-hmm. yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. So what's the most gentle advice to someone who then wants to in, incur like a meditation practice, but has this ceiling on how much they can sit still, what should they, or what could they maybe do that would make it a way in to mm-hmm. that experience? Yeah. Some of that I think too is based on understanding because I think it's exactly the way you described. And so many of these patterns or habits were pretty smart adaptations at some point in life. Depending on the circumstance, you know, leaving your body, going numb, not feeling anything, not letting yourself be angry. So many things, you know, at the time seemed a reasonable choice and might have been the best choice. So it's, first of all, learning how to forgive yourself for that instead of feeling like I'm so flawed or whatever. And, you know, with that spirit saying, okay, how do I bring some balance? Because I'm not two years old anymore. Mm -hmm. I have choices. I have options that were not existent. And also, this is kind of a crummy go-to place, you know, to be my automatic. That's true. Inevitable response. Let me expand that repertoire, those sense of possibilities. So it's from that spirit that we start to work. And it brings me to what I think is the basic principle anyway of meditation, whatever your background, which is learning how to begin again. Because something will happen, if not dissociation, distraction you know, we're being overwhelmed by something inevitably. And we don't face that often, even in the way we use language, like so many times, and me too, you know, but so many times people will ask me, how do I stay mindful all day long at work? Or how do I keep the level of concentration I got in the retreat? And my response is always, it's not going to happen. Yeah. You're not going to stay perfectly mindful. You're not going to keep the level of concentration you got under a certain set of circumstances, unbroken, unchanging, because nothing is like that. And so learning how to begin again, learning how to be distracted or gone, you know, and say, oh, I was gone, and then feel your feet against the ground and take a breath. And it's not a disgrace. It's not a problem. That's actually the practice for everybody. You know, so my first instruction in my first retreat, which began January 7th, 1971 in India, the first instruction Goenka gave us was sit down and feel your breath. 
just sit and feel the sensations of the in and out breath. And my first thought is that, you know, I often talk about was that's really stupid. Like I came all the way to India. Where's the magical, esoteric, fantastic technique that's going to wipe out all my suffering and make me totally happy. And then I thought, eh, how hard can this be? What will it be like 800 breaths before my mind wanders 900 breaths? And so my astonishment was like one breath or two breaths and I'd be gone. I'd be way gone. And then comes the magic moment when I realize, oh, it's been quite some time since I last felt a breath. That's the point of maximum learning. Because usually we get very harsh and we feel we failed and we, we dump on ourselves or we're down on ourselves. And if we get lost in that, if we jump on that train, not only are we extending the period of the distraction, sometimes considerably, but we're so exhausted, we're so demoralized, it's very hard to pick it up and start again. Whereas learning, okay, gently let go, and with compassion or kindness for yourself, come back. You start over. That's how progress is actually made. We let go and we begin again. We let go and we start over. And I didn't realize, of course, at first, I didn't appreciate it, but that is probably the biggest life lesson I've taken from the meditative practice because it's a direct translation. Like how many times in a day do we have to do a course correction or we actually make a mistake and we have to do something about that or we fall down and we have to pick ourselves up or let someone help us up. We're always starting over and starting over. And so if you don't fall into discouragement about that, but you see that as inevitably part of the process and a good thing, not a bad thing, then that's all we need to really, whatever, you know, one is going through, have a successful, so to speak, meditation practice. That's so helpful and powerful, especially when I feel like all the time, everywhere, all around us, if we want it, you can find how people are pointing you toward a pile of things, achievement, like there's just so much that seems like it needs your attention for you to be worthy or productive or successful. Like you need to go get this pile and then you need to acquire this much of an audience and this much in your bank. It's just a lot to do to, 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 to get to that place called there, you know, when you're trying to get there to make it to be there. And then what you just said is like, Oh, I think the most powerful thing I've ever learned is how to bring my attention back, you know, and I'm curious what you say to human beings who find that even when they keep piling things in this pile, there's not this feeling of well-being that they thought would be there. Obviously, when you step back, you can see that. But when you get caught in the program that we're all sort of subscribed to on some level, you really keep thinking it's there. And yet there's something so beautiful that is actually offered to you when you turn toward what you're sharing, which is Mm -hmm. bringing radical awareness to what's happening, what process you can witness in a moment. Can you speak to that? Like the emptiness in people on the rat race hamster wheel and what is actually more akin to joy that's available somewhere else, somewhere other than on that, that ladder we're trying to climb. Sure. I know, you know, it takes a lot to step away from society's insistence, you know, that if you only accumulate enough or you step on enough people, so you feel Hmm. stronger than they, you know, my favorite saying to take apart is it's a dog eat dog world, which is ridiculous, you know, but, the way many of us were raised, you know, like, don't help anybody else because they're not going to help you. And it doesn't matter what you have to do to get to the top or do it to whom, you just do it. All you have to do is pay attention and you realize there's not a lot of happiness. That, you know, that's not where it is. And so I think for people, it's, it's largely a question of not feeling so alone and feeling, oh, yeah, maybe there's another way or maybe I can be successful and ambitious and have standards of excellence, but not be so caught or compromise so much that I really feel miserable, you know? So it's all about paying attention. And because, you know, as soon as you said, like, markers of success, all I could think of was that 
then there's that one book review, you know, where yeah, somebody doesn't praise you to the skies. Or when I usually talk about equanimity, I tell the story about my very first book, which is called Loving Kindness, which took me forever to write for any number of reasons. One is I didn't have my own computer, right? You know, it was nobody who did in those days, you know. And so cutting and pasting meant getting a pair of scissors and cutting out a paragraph and then moving it up and down the page. And when you knew where you wanted to put it, you got a roll of scotch tape and you taped it on. That was cutting and pasting, so it was slow. But it was also slow because I had never written a book before. It was like a dream. I didn't think I could. And it was just very hard. And if you actually ever see a copy of Loving Kindness, the hardcover original, you see the original blurbs on the back where somebody, I think it was Jack Cornfield said, um, we've waited a long time for this book. And Stephen Levine said, in his long awaited first book, it took me a very long time to write the book. And, and then finally it was out. It was such an amazing thing for me. And I went to California and I had lunch with somebody and she said, oh, Sharon, I'm reading Loving Kindness in that book. It's just like sitting down and having a conversation with you. It sounds just like you. And I thought, wow, there's probably not a more beautiful thing you could say to a writer. And I'm a writer now. And how extraordinary. And what an amazing comment. And I was so excited by it that I was having dinner that night with a whole other group of people. And I brought it up. And someone at the dinner table said, well, that's not true. It doesn't sound anything like you. It's nothing like being with you. And I thought, okay, you can be ecstatic at lunch and depressed at dinner. Or take a moment and reflect. It's one book they're talking about. One person felt one way about it. Another person felt another way about it. That's inevitable. That's a part of life. The Buddha talked about that too. He said, there's always blame in this world. If you say nothing, some people will blame you. If you say a lot, some people will blame you. If you say just a little bit, some people will blame you. There's always blame in this world. Which doesn't mean that we're cut off to feedback or... You know, there are things to listen to and learn. But it also doesn't mean that we need to decide who we are and if we're worthy of living because of someone else's view, because they will all have different views. It's inevitable. We can look back to our intention, what motivated me to do this thing or try this thing, and how well did I do? You know, was I skilled? Was I rushed? Was I? We learn all the time, but that idea of like, giving over our whole sense of who we are to someone else that we also learn not to do. That's so huge. And I feel like of everything we're talking about, it feels like I want to use the word urgent because the amount of stress and pain and suffering that happens because people are outsourcing their well-being to (laughs) the vicissitudes of what's around them is so not helpful. And I once heard, and they attributed it to, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh, who knows who actually said it, and mm-hmm. maybe he said it. But the idea was like, you don't have to protect your energy if you project your energy, right? Like, I'm going to guess that people like Ram Dass or you or the Dalai Lama, like, I'm going to make an assumption that if he went to the DMV, he'll be okay. You know, like, he's not going to allow anybody's mood to be that powerful to take him out of his center. And the fact that you even name that and that we can be reminded that we have that capacity is huge because everybody wants to blame everybody for why they feel the way they feel. So what's one thing that we could maybe do today after listening to this podcast that can help those of us listening to recenter so that we can actually have some dominion over how we feel, regardless of what's mm-hmm. happening around us. Well, what I would suggest is choosing a, a method, which means choosing an anchor for your attention that you will come back to. Because even likely at the DMV, not to, I don't know about the Dalai Lama, but... Uh, That's a tough one. Yeah, I mean, I think we get caught. You know, you feel overwhelmed or somebody treats you badly, which happens, and you feel that toxicity, but that doesn't mean it has to linger. Right. You know, it has to land somewhere and it doesn't. And so that's the difference here, too. We're starting over. Like maybe we get overwhelmed for a moment or, you know, we want to retaliate in speech or, or something. We just think, just let it go. It's not worth it. 
and you come back to a, a better place. And so that's what I mean by an anchor. It's like sometimes for some people it's the breath, just like take a few breaths. That'll recenter you. And Thich Nhat Hanh was very famous for that. He said, don't pick up your phone on the first ring, let it ring three times and breathe. And then you pick it up. You know, so I've taught like in organizations and companies sometimes. And uh, I said that once at a finance company in New York and I looked up and I saw the complete panic on everyone's faces and, it's so, okay for you, maybe just twice, you know, just during twice. And, but it's to decide on something. Yeah. And then to kind of sprinkle it throughout your day like that when you're commuting, when you're at work. Every now and then, you know, before you pick up your phone or before you answer somebody's email, just take a few breaths and see what happens because you're paying attention the whole time, like mm-hmm. what's helpful and what's not. And we just need like these little pauses or, if it's loving kindness, which is another method where you might silently repeat certain phrases, may you be happy, may you be peaceful. People tell me things like when they're little faces in boxes on Zoom, you know, they'll look one face at a time and you have to be silent <laughs> and think, may you be happy, may you be peaceful. And then the next face, and the next face, and the next face. And the whole time, just pay attention to how it's affecting you. And when you feel like you're losing it and, Someone else has already lost it. Let's say you're working outside the home and people were screaming and you're starting to get really anxious. Yep. You do it then. I think it's really so cool to hear that. And it's simple enough. It's also challenging, but it's simple enough that we could try it. And what I think is a derivative of that is that when, and I, I experienced this myself, I'm going to just call myself out, but for me and also for some of my friends and the people that I know, when we start to be more of who we want to be. It's funny how we then have less compassion sometimes for people who are like not conscious. And it's like, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. Like you just Mm -hmm. come home from a a silent retreat and now you're more triggered by your husband because he can't get off his phone. It's like, that's the opposite, right? But what Mm -hmm. do you say to people? Because there are a lot of like amazing women who listen to people like you and then they feel more frustrated, like, wait, what am I going to do now? You know, I'm married to someone who doesn't want to come to these retreats or my kids are always like on their phones at dinner. And then they feel like they have more resistance towards the people they love. And really that's not the goal. So what can we remember in those moments that maybe will be helpful, but also maybe helpful to them being motivated toward it? I don't know. I mean, maybe that's in and of itself a problem if we have that agenda, but Obviously, we would want everyone to be more at ease, right? But what what do you think we can maybe contemplate about that? Well, you know, I think what's helpful for all of us is to sort of separate the form of something from what uh, benefit it might bring, because maybe many things would bring that benefit. Oh, that's interesting. And the more we press somebody, like you have to go on retreat, for example, the harder it gets, because it's like your love language or something could be different. But I think we can ask things of people. It just needs to be like our kids, you know, like no phones at the dinner table. We're going to make an experiment. You can grab the instant dinners over or whatever their habit normally is. Or, But I think there can be structure and there can be requests and experiments because especially if we pay attention throughout it all, like and it's an avenue for communication. What does it feel like when you think about giving a gift to somebody and then you get afraid. Like, I haven't read it in four years, but what if I need it? You know, like, and what happens when you give it anyway? And do you ever regret it? And then to have a sense of community, whether it's the family or whatever, like to talk about all that, what did it feel like to have an impulse to give? What did it feel like to get afraid? What did it feel like to give it anyway? And do you regret it? And to have that for people, you know, what does it feel like not to have the fun? Maybe it feels terrible. Well, why, you know? Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? But to not have it be so particular, it's got to be this form, it's got to be this style, it's got to yeah, be exactly. silent, it's got to be, you know, but that's where we hopefully will learn about things like gratitude and generosity. And Yeah, and I love the experiment word, and I love, like, bringing your family into that word, mm-hmm. and I love the inquiry and your great questions because – the mind wants to be stimulated and those are such stimulating, fun things to think about. Like, how does mm-hmm. that feel? Like, oh, I never even thought about that. I was never curious about that. So juicy. The other thing I want to ask you sort of as we're wrapping up, 
and you said it a few different times and you just said it, you know, thinking about, you said earlier, compassion and, and thinking about gratitude, but also generosity. I, I say this because um, when I was living, studying Jewish mysticism and meditation, living in the old city of Jerusalem, I at one point said to my rabbi, I said, okay, I'm ready. I want to have like the most possible spiritual experience here in Jerusalem. Like, what is it? What should I go do today? And he's like, you ready? You really ready? And I was like, yeah. He's like, okay, you're going to leave this little door and you're going to walk down this little cobblestone street. And then uh, there's a door and it's blue and you knock on it. I'm like, yeah. And he goes, there's a woman in there. She's a widow. I want you to offer to do her dishes. He's like, that's the most spiritual experience you can have today. And I was just bawling because I like got it. Like it was like, go help someone. (laughs) Like you want to have a radically amazing transcendent experience. Go do someone's dishes. Mm -hmm. She just lost her husband. She has six kids. And I did it. And I came back and he goes, was I right? I go, I couldn't even talk. I'm just, you know. And I say that because sometimes when I would come home from a meditation retreat, I would observe that people would go for their own sense of well-being, but they wouldn't necessarily think about how that beautiful well now of well-being could be such a gift Mm -hmm. to be in service of Mm -hmm. someone else. And Mm -hmm. I sit here thinking about Bob Waldinger's study that, you know, came on, talked about like, where where does happiness ultimately come from? Relationship. Like, Mm -hmm. It's the people you give to. And so I love that you, you've even hinted at that because I think people have this false sense that meditation is about you going off to the mountain. And the whole point of it is for the collective, right? And that brings us back to your book. It's not about isolation. It's about how you deepen your capacity, right, to connect. So can you just talk a little bit about that and how maybe we can think about that we are needed and we can serve a bigger purpose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think here there are lots of levels, you know, cause if I think about my own experience, I think I was really frankly in too much pain in the beginning of my spiritual life to really think about others. I mean, I was in, I was in India, I was in Buddhist context. So There's lots of chanting going on about the well-being of others and lots of reference to that, but uh, it wasn't time yet for me. You know, I needed to, heal some and be in a different place. And I think that is sometimes true for people, any one of us in any circumstance. And we have to allow for that as well. But I think it is a natural evolution to really consider it in a wide, a practice in a wider way. And if that does not happen, then we're kind of stuck. You know, if it doesn't happen eventually in time. And and I think we see that in a lot of ways because like what, that day I decided to come back to Barry Mass in the very beginning of the pandemic, I was teaching in, in a place where the custom was that the speaker sits in the first row with the audience. And then once they're formally introduced, they get up on the stage and they, and they speak. So I was sitting in the audience and anxiety was super high. This is March 9th, mm-hmm. 2020. Mm-hmm. And uh, you don't know if you should touch anything, you know, it was just like, it's New York. So it's really a bad scene. And uh, sitting next to a woman who was like freaked out of her head, you know, uh, understandably so. I don't know if I should come, but I came and I don't know, you know. So I said to her, well, you know, there is this kind of breath, which there is, and it's often useful. This sort of breathing where, I mean, it's, it can be done in a lot of different ways, but basically if your out breath is longer than your in breath, uh, the parasympathetic nervous system will start to take over from the sympathetic nervous system you're likely to feel more relaxed, more chill. She wasn't interested. So then I said, well, there is this meditation called loving kindness meditation, which helps you feel connected to a bigger picture of life. And, and you feel much better. She wasn't interested. So I looked at her and I said, is there anyone you can help? And she lit up. She got really radiant. She said, oh, I have this elderly neighbor and maybe I could slip a note under her door and see if she needs groceries or something. And I thought, look at that, you know. Um, and so that stayed with me for years, you know. So almost intuitively, it's like we know that. Wow. But sometimes we can't really take it in until we're ready. And then we can. And so I think having that message out there in a non-coercive, demanding way, you know, is really important. 
It's such a beautiful story. And yeah, I love your honesty around, like I was in so much pain. I don't think I was ready for that. I think that that's so honest and it just gave me permission to be like, yeah, okay. You know, I think that there is this feeling of guilt all the time that you're not doing enough. That's like always being, you know, sort of carried by all of us. And then I just think you're right. Having it out there in a non coercive way, but just knowing that it's available and that we do light up deeply. So just to wrap up this book, when you know that someone's going to read this book, what do you hope that they walk away with, with this last book? I would say I really like this book, which is nice, you know. I mean, the the book came to me actually watching this show on YouTube called Saturday Night Seder. I mean, oh, it was about Passover yes. Seder, right, I which is great. Yeah, I love great. it. And it reminded me, amongst other things, of, first of all, that is a journey, all beings at all times seeking freedom. That's the journey we make. Correct. Because the word Egypt is symbolic, taking us totally away from geopolitics. It is. Um, The word Egypt means the narrow straits, right? It means the constrained, tight place. And so it's a journey from there to openness and freedom. So I thought, oh, that's the arc of a book. And that became the book. And so I think one of the things I like about the book is like that whole long list of the times we tend to be the most constrained, the feel the most trapped, the fewer options, the thing can't breathe, things like that. It's not even necessarily what we're feeling, but it's the way we tend to relate to certain feelings, like greed. We get all caught in it and we get overwhelmed by it. Or yeah. hatred, which can have like shame as a kind of self-hatred. You know, it closes us down. It's not the environment with which we can learn or grow or or change even, ironically enough. And so I looked at all of those states that I could think of, but the ways of working with them are not abolishing them and hating ourselves further for them, but creating a different holding environment. So I have a lot of techniques in there that I've used or been taught or I noticed in first speaking about the book, the one that many, many people would talk about would be what a Tibetan teacher of mine named Sonny Rinpoche calls handshake practice. Like you see that tremendous fear or jealousy in yourself, the thing you don't want. And instead of trying to dismiss it or annihilate it, you go up and shake its hand like, hi, like I see you. We're going to hang out together a little bit now. So I really enjoy that. And then I think going on, like cultivating the expansive open states that are connecting us to others, to to life itself, like loving kindness. It was also great fun to contemplate and, and write about. And so it's got both aspects that I really enjoy. I love that. I love the shaking hands with those aspects. I, I think that there's something so liberating about that is uh, letting go of shame and just like bringing it all close. Uh, I'm also curious just on just because you brought up the Seder and it just made me think of something that I've thought before. I'm curious if you've ever had this thought. So many of the people you mentioned from Ram Dass to Joseph, like so many Jewish people are interested in mindfulness. And have you ever asked yourself, what is it about? Why? Like, is there something that's a predisposition in our culture that leads us to want to be more involved in mind. I don't understand. Like I, it'd be one thing if there was like three teachers, but it's like all of the people almost that I've sat. Mm-hmm. I'm like, Oh, you were okay. That's so interesting. And that yeah. was my foray was meeting a rabbi who is a Jewish Buddhist therapist <laughs> rabbi. And I was like, Oh my gosh. And he's like, yeah, so many as, and then my rabbi knew Ram Dass and would have Shabbat dinners with him. And he was, I was like, he was Jewish. So I was always wondering, I've never asked anybody who might know. So I'm just curious, have you ever thought that thought and what answer have you had? I've been asked that question for a long time. And so, cause I think it is a prevalent question. I think culturally uh, is also generational. It's like, you know, the Insight Meditation Society just did a teacher training, uh, finished a couple of years ago where they, Uh, There were 20 people who were trained to be teachers and 17 people of color and not Jewish. You know, I think that's also a reality. You know, it's like 
it's my generation, you know, it's yeah. Joseph Goldstein, Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg, Ramdas, who's Richard Alpert, you know, it's very true. And uh, Jack always says, sounds like a law firm. Um, <laughs> I think some of it in those days was really because within Judaism, not now, but then, you know, if you had a spiritual hunger, it was not going to find much true. happiness. True. You know, the idea of personal liberation was like a little weird. Like that seems, that's for the saints of old, you know. Let's quote Rabbi Nachum of Ukraine, you know, like again. But what about you? It wasn't relevant. The contrast to my teachers in Buddhism who, this one teacher, Meninja, once said to me, the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem. Now you solve yours. So it was like, what am I going to do this morning? What am I going to do? Yeah. Uh, it was very personal and real and important. And so that was part of it. We were just not satisfied. And I think it would be very different now. But a part of it was, I think, growing up in a culture that praised questioning and investigation and exploration and study. And it matched in, in a lot of ways. These days, like with your rabbi, it's very different. So different. Yeah, and they brought so much of that in back, you know. And also we were coming out of, you know, the Holocaust where there was just so much darkness and such a giant trauma and so many of the Hasidic masters and the Kabbalists, you know, and the meditators mm-hmm. uh, who would go into the forest and practice Hidbodaju, which was hours of meditation. We lost, like, yeah, they're gone. many of those teachers. And maybe there was a way in which it somehow it's still in there. And then there was a seeking of it, but uh, it's been such a gift to meet you. And I am so honored because you're such a phenomenal teacher and you're such a loving person and you're so lovable and loving. And I'm not surprised that you've just been massively impactful all these years. So we'll put all the links in the show notes and everything to your, all the things you have a summit, you have a podcast, you have all the books, um, but tell everybody where the best place is to follow along with you. Probably my website, which is just SharonSalzberg.com, and it's all there in some form or another. Okay, awesome. I personally am like so excited to dive into your Living Authentic Life Summit, and you're doing a Emerging Into Connection. It's a five-day challenge, September 13th. I want to do all of these things. I like I live for these things. So when I find out about new ones, I'm like, oh, this is so exciting. So we'll definitely tell the community about it. And thank you so much for all of it. Thank you so much. It's awesome meeting you, really. You're so sweet. It's great. I've known about you for so long. So it's so fun to meet somebody who I've admired and and to find out that you're like so cool and kind. So it's awesome. Thank you so much, Sharon. I hope that our paths cross again. I hope so too. Thank you. I mean, how amazing is Sharon? All right, here are the takeaways. Number one, hatred will never cease by hatred. It will only cease by love. This is an eternal law. Number two, instead of thinking about eradicating thoughts, think about changing your relationship to thoughts. It's the holding environment within which it's seen. It takes time and it's a process, but it's doable. Number three, having equanimity is the doorway to wisdom. Number four, meditation is learning how to begin again. Gently let go and with compassion or kindness for yourself, come back, start over. That's how the progress is actually made. Number five, if you want a radically amazing transcendent experience, go help someone. The whole point of it is for the collective. It's not about isolation. It's about how you deepen your capacity to connect. Number six, all beings at all times are seeking freedom. That's the journey we make. Number seven, create a different holding environment for your feelings. Don't abolish or dismiss your fear, your jealousy, or your self-hatred. Instead, go up to it, shake its hand, and say, hey, I see you. We're going to hang out together. And number eight, the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem. Now you solve yours. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so grateful you heard today's conversation. I think it's so important, especially in this time. And I know there's so many things that you can be doing right now. So it means the world that you're here. We have so many great episodes coming up. So please follow along on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening. And if you're a fan of this mission, please leave us a review because it helps so much. If you can think of one person who would benefit from hearing this episode, please email them the link or post about it or text them the link because I think that this is one of those episodes that can really bring someone peace. And finally, two things. If you want to join my new membership, you can use the code LOVE 
and you can get a discount. Go to kathyheller.com slash quilt. Our first kickoff call is this week on September 6th. And if you are an alumni, you should DM me on Instagram because we have a separate code for you. Also, Amy Porterfield is doing a phenomenal boot camp called Course Confident. She's going to help you figure out, is there a digital course in you? What would you teach? How would you charge for it? How would you grow your audience? It's going to be incredible. It's five different days of trainings. You are going to absolutely love it. I promise you're going to turn around and say, that was one of the most inspiring, insightful, informative things I've ever done. You can sign up for that at kathyheller.com slash Amy. And when you do, I'm also giving you a bunch of awesome bonuses. I love you guys so much. I'm so excited for all this stuff going on. I'll leave you with a song of mine and I'll talk to you soon. Subway cars filled with tiny souls. Some are young and some of them are old. Saddest faces you have ever seen. How can we set each other free? Gonna worry life away Gonna be happy, gonna be happy